Hello, and God bless you. This is Pastor Jeremy, and what a pleasure to be with you all on this Monday, January 11th of 2021. Along with my brothers, Brother Marty and Brother Fernando, as always, it is a pleasure and it is an honor to be able to spend this time with you, uh, the listening audience, our brothers and sisters, friends. Thank you for joining us and making us part of uh, your daily <laughs> your daily bread, Monday through Friday. And we thank God for all that he has done for uh, allowing us to go through this weekend. Of course, always uh, looking unto the Lord, always meditating, thinking on the things that are that are ahead of us, looking into the word, and God is always speaking. So we're happy to start this week, and we're excited about the word of God. God always has fresh manna to give us, and we praise God for that. So we're going to begin our study. We pray that uh, you join us and with your hearts open, have your Bibles ready as we look and glean from the Word of God. So Brother Marty, I'll leave it to you to share what God has placed in your heart as we continue to discuss and study the Word of God together. Well, praise the Lord. It's good to be back again today as we begin a new week in, in the Word of Almighty God. We welcome those of you that are just joining us as we continue to add people to our podcast. I've been getting reports and emails and so forth and so on from many people that are beginning to uh, not only watch on the Instagram, but also uh, connect to uh, to the deeper Bible studies we attempt to do on these podcasts. So we thank you and welcome you that are new. We encourage you to go back over the 2020 and listen to those 190 plus podcast uh, we titled uh, them and whatever the lord leads you to listen to we encourage you to do so so much information was given in 2020 and now we find ourselves here in 2021 in many ways a an even more tumultuous year has been packed in to the last 10 days or so today's the 11th i think uh then than what we witnessed in 2020. 2020, in many ways, was simply the warm-up act, it seems like to me. And what we have taking place around the world is extraordinary, but primarily what is taking place in this country. As we continue to see uh, forces of darkness and forces of light uh, really contesting uh, in these times. And so we continue, as always, going forward, seeking the Lord for what he is, uh, we prayerfully hope, uh, speaking to our hearts and by the Spirit of God. And so today we're going to get into uh, an interesting subject as we continue to explore uh, the times that we're living in, but also uh, understanding from the things that happened before uh, what we are seeing today. And so as we begin our study today, we encourage you to have your Bibles <clears throat> And open them, if you would, to the Gospel of St. Matthew. We're going to be uh, exploring a parable that, that Jesus uh, shared with um, the Sanhedrin. And uh, I'm going to ask Brother Jeremy if he would uh, begin reading uh, in Matthew 21, verse 33 to 34. And we'll begin our study today in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out 
to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. Praise the Lord. Verse 34 says, when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants. As we begin to look at this parable today, there's some very uh, interesting things that happened. And we want to look at it from that perspective. The Lord is talking to his servants, those that were in charge of the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem, and really subsequently the whole nation. They had instituted a series of, of uh, I don't know what you would call it, little churches, synagogues across the land, and into, even into the Asia Minor, up into the uh, the Gentile nations of the world. And <clears throat> Judaism had reached its height, really, at the time that the Lord came. And so when we pick up this story that we're beginning to look at today, what we're actually witnessing is the final few days of the Lord's public ministry. For three and a half years, he's been attempting to present himself to the nation and to the leadership of the nation. And all the while, um, the leadership of the nation continues to resist, continues to investigate for the purposes of destroying the Lord. When you pick up chapter 21, you'll find that this is the time that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. It's his last week before he goes to Calvary. But in many ways, it's the last opportunity for the nation itself to to receive what he was bringing to them. Uh, but they they would have none of it. It's his last week of public ministry, like we said. And he rides into Jerusalem in chapter 21. And there's a great celebration. It's the culmination of three and a half years of of great revival across Israel. You know, Lazarus had just been raised from the dead. It's the final Passover the Lord will will share with his disciples. And as he said on that night, he wouldn't drink that cup of, of wine that they shared until he drank it again in the kingdom of heaven. When he comes into Jerusalem, uh, the multitude gather on the road and begin to cry, Hosanna to the son of David. And the first thing that he does in verse 11 of chapter 21 is he goes into the temple and he begins to overturn the tables, to overturn uh, the system of commerce that they had instituted in the house of God. It had become a religious establishment controlled by the ruling elite. The Hasmonean dynasty was well entrenched. The priesthood had been split in two bought and sold and determined really by political connection. That's why when you read the Gospels, you'll see it mentions both Annas and Caiaphas, which was a violation of God's law. You can't have two high priests. But it was really a family business, handed from one generation to another, down through the ages. And it came to be in its fullest expression when the Lord came to Jerusalem. So he rides into Jerusalem and and he hits them right where it matters to them in their in their businesses they had set up in the temple. He overturned the the tables. He drove out the money changers. He cleansed the house of God, and then he would begin a a series of of 
of incredible miracles that would occur in the temple. And, and this is what drew the ire of the establishment. They came to him and began to persecute him and, and uh, began to question him, began with all their might to uh, look for an occasion to accuse him, but they really couldn't. He was the perfect, sinless son of the living God. And so as they continue to press, and when you actually read uh, chapter 21, 22, and 23, you'll see that this whole week, and the way that Matthew wrote it in the gospel is really cool because there's incredible uh, lengthy uh, record of what he spoke and taught during those final days that he was there. And when we get to chapter 23, uh, he basically ends up leaving the temple and pronouncing judgment upon the house telling them that they wouldn't see him there again until they were willing to cry, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. In one of these encounters in the final week, uh, they came to him and they asked him, questioning his authority, which is very interesting if you think about it, because that's that's the political nature of how, how the nation had become, the political nature of religion. Whose authority do you do these things in? In other words, we didn't sanction you to come in here and upset the apple cart, right? I mean, that's basically what they were saying. And uh, and so he basically asks them this question. He says, all right, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you'll answer a question for me. And they said, okay, you know, what's your question? And he said, all right, let me ask you this. John's baptism, he told them in verse 25, was it from heaven or was it from men? And when you begin to read what they did in response to that question is they began to argue amongst each other and debate. And, and, and they basically said, if we say that it's from heaven, he's going to ask us, why didn't we believe what John was preaching then? But if we say that it, it was men and, and sanctioned by men and not heaven, then, then uh, the people will get mad at us because they know that John was a prophet. They believe John was a prophet. So basically what he was doing by asking that question was several things. One, it had been prophesied in the book of Malachi that God would send forth Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And that one of the characteristics is that the son of righteousness would arise with healing in, in his wings. Matthew uh, records this when Jesus cleanses the temple. He's actually fulfilling what, <laughs> what Malachi had written. Let's take a look at that real quick, Brother Jeremy, with you in Malachi chapter 3. It's how the Lord came, and that's why he drew their attention. He always spoke to them uh, within the confines of, of the prophetic scriptures. They, above all people, should know best. They should have known best what was actually happening. They were the learned scribes, the Sanhedrin. They were the ruling elders of Israel. And so when he approached them, he always spoke to them on the basis of the word. So when he comes into the final days of chapter 21 and he cleanses the temple, he's basically fulfilling prophecy before their eyes. And what he goes on in this parable that we're about to look at by telling them a story, he's basically exposing them for what their real motives were. But first he does what he does. He cleanses the temple and then he begins to heal. Let's take a look at that because uh, after, after he's, confronted over what he's doing, he then asks them the question about John the Baptist. 
Because what he's actually doing is proving to them that he is what the scriptures have foretold he would be, and yet they refuse to acknowledge it. So first thing that he's drawing their attention to is in chapter 3. Uh, could you read uh, verse uh, 1 through through uh, through 3, Brother Jeremy, would you? Amen. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So when the Lord comes into Jerusalem in this final week in chapter 21, that's, that's what he does. He comes suddenly to his temple. He's there, and he begins to, in many ways, refine them. And, and how does he do that? He begins to cleanse the temple. He begins to remove all the iniquity out of the house. Again, this is much deeper than we have the ability to go into today, but it is also the process that, that had to take place during the Passover. One of the things that the law stated was that you were to go throughout the house and remove all the leaven in the house uh, in preparation for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that was what Jesus was doing. He He was coming to inspect the house, and all the leaven that he found there, he removed it. He did this publicly and openly, although they couldn't see what he was doing. But then he draws their attention to John the Baptist. And he says, who was he? And, and was his mission from heaven? They really couldn't answer him when it came to the authority of the temple. He approached them on the basis that my authority is drawn and derived from this, the prophetic scriptures that we just read here. And if they would have taken the time, which I'm sure they did, scholarly so, to go back and review it, they would have seen that that's exactly what he was saying to them, because he appealed to the scriptures by what he asked them. Whether they could discern it fully or not, this is what he was saying. He asked them about John, because they asked Jesus about his authority. And if John's mission was from heaven, they would have known the prophecy that was given to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. Because once John's father began to speak again after a nine-month period, go back and read it in Luke chapter 1, one of the things that the angel Gabriel told Zechariah was that John would go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Well, that would have alerted those uh, within the temple construct itself and the leadership that Elijah was coming, and that would have taken them right back here to what we started reading in chapter 3. I'm going to send my messenger first. That's why uh, Jesus approached them on that basis. Who was John? Because if you acknowledge that he's from heaven, then you have to acknowledge that he carried with him the spirit of Elijah, and therefore he was making way for me, and you're questioning my authority. But if, if you refuse to acknowledge who John was, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do this. You're useless, basically. But what he was actually doing was exposing who they really were. So the first thing he does is he comes in the final week. He presents himself 
as the as the messenger of the covenant the lord whom they claim to be seeking suddenly comes to his temple and indeed he sits as the refiner's fire in that he cleanses and purifies the house so that the offerings that were being made there under the law could be offered in righteousness and the passover that was about to occur could be offered in righteousness so to speak one of the other things that <clears throat> that was revealed was that he would he would arise with healing in his wings. Can you read that, Brother Jeremy, in verse 2 of chapter 4 of Malachi? 2. And, but unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. So another thing that, that he was doing publicly was fulfilling this scripture in the first advent of the Lord, the first appearance of the Lord. That's why uh, Matthew includes this when uh, he first cleanses the temple. Can you go back there and read that in Matthew chapter 21, Brother Jeremy? Read to us Matthew 21, verse 12 through verse 14. And before you read that again, what we're saying is Jesus is publicly fulfilling what Malachi's prophecy said would happen. He comes to the temple suddenly he refines it and purifies it like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap in that he casts out all the leaven all the merchandising in the house of god he then proclaims the house of god as a house of prayer and then he fulfills uh malachi's prophecy of the son of righteousness arising with healing in his wings all of this was being done in the perfect view of the religious establishment and so they were without excuse. Can you read that, Brother Jeremy, 20, uh, 21, 12 through 14? Yes. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And he healed them. So notice the progression there. He's fulfilling prophecy. It is first He's first introduced as the one whose way will be prepared, which he's going to deal with here in a second, as a proof text for his authority. But he goes and he suddenly comes into the temple and then he he acts as the refiner and the purifier. He begins to cast out the leaven out of the house, the merchandising, the den of thieves, he called it. That's what you've done to this house. So he comes to the sons of Levi and purifies the house. That's followed in Malachi's prophecy of chapter four, after the cleansing, after the refining and, and the fuller soap, as they described it in Malachi, he then arises with healing in his wings. That's what he's telling them in verse 14 by healing the, the blind and the lame in the temple. And, and he was proving himself to them so that even the children begin to cry out that he's the son of David. He's the Messiah. But they wouldn't receive it. And we're not going to get thoroughly into this entire chapter, but that's when they come and they begin to question him. In verse 23 and 24, can you do that, Brother Jeremy, and read that? 23 and 24? Yes. 
And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he asks him this, the baptism of John. He starts turning them to John, and, and he asks them, whence was it, or where did it come from? Was it from heaven, or was it from men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, if we say it's from heaven, he's going to tell us, why didn't you believe him? And in essence, what they were saying was they knew that John had baptized Jesus. They knew that John had said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So he hits them right between the eyes because really what he's doing, brothers, and those of you listening out there, is he's ripping the, the, the falsehood and the cover off of their, you know, supposed piety, these holy men, right? That's how they presented themselves. When you get into chapter 22 and then you really dig into chapter 23 just before he leaves the temple permanently, and he leaves them with those final words echoing really down through the last 2,000 years under our time and to Israel today. He says, you will not see me here again until you cry, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So whether they realized or not, this whole, the events of this week was moving them into the position where ultimate judgment was going to come down upon them. But he had to fulfill prophecy. He had to present himself in the most public of ways. And he was testified of not only on the people on the road when he came into Jerusalem and they were crying Hosanna to the king, but also by the children who were saying, this is the son of David, and by the blind that were being healed, and by the cleansing of the temple, and then drawing their attention to John and saying, who was he? And they wouldn't answer it. And, and, and so he goes on and says, well, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things then. But really what he had ultimately done was expose them and who they really were. And so he tells them a couple stories, a parables, if you will, but then he gets to this parable that we're talking to you about today, and we're going to go quickly through this. Verse 33, he presents it in a very unique way. Can you read that in verse 33, Brother Jeremy, again? Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about, and did a winepress in it, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. The Lord right here, as he's, as he's beginning to really bear down on them, as he begins with this parable, it's incredible how, how deep of a level that he speaks at here. He's really, as you go through the rest of the parable, what he's actually going to do here is reveal to them their current situation. And, and, and he's going to start from the beginning. He's really going to start from eternity uh, past into eternity present and then eternity future. And how he presents in this story uh, the two phases, really, of, of first the initial coming of the Lord and then his second coming. This is what he's about to tell them. It's quite amazing. This is what he says here. 
He talks about in verse 33, a certain householder. When you dig into the words here, and we're not going to take all that time today, but he's drawing their attention. And this householder he's referring to is the father himself. Because the word householder literally means uh, the absolute ruler. The first thing that he begins to talk to them about and address them, and on the basis that he addresses them in the parable, is he's drawing their attention to the absolute ruler, the God they, they, they claim to serve. The, the word householder also means the absolute head of the family. So he's talking about the ancient of days himself. And how he begins to unfold to them in a fourfold process. He begins to talk to them about what he did, the absolute ruler did. He, he draws their attention to four things. To the vineyard, to the hedge, to the wine press, and to the tower. Now these, these four things that Jesus draws their attention to is exactly how he is leading up to the ultimate conclusion about why, why he's going to judge them. Because the four things are basically the, the four epochs, if you will, the four ages of time that would lead up to the appearance uh, of the Son of God himself. Now let's take a look at this. The absolute ruler, he says, planted a vineyard. And, and really that vineyard was Israel. That's what he's talking to them about. But the vineyard, if you remember, it, it actually wasn't planted until they were delivered out of Egypt. And then under the leadership of Moses and Joshua, they came into the promised land. Moses bringing them to the edge, Joshua leading them in. And that's when the vineyard was planted in the promised land. So he, he's beginning to say to them that, that the Father gave you this, this vineyard. And then, and, and that's the first thing. That's, that's the Moses-Joshua era. You can label it whatever you want. You could start with Father Abraham if you want, if you want and really work it out in a, in a longer uh, meditative process on, on this truth that he's talking to them about. <clears throat> but the vineyard is just that. It, it's the promised land itself. And then he says this. Uh, and, uh, he says he then hedged it. He hedged it roundabout. So the, he, he begins to describe how the vineyard uh, is protected now the vineyard in many in many senses is the church it is the church of israel to begin with and then when he concludes in this story he's basically talking about the true church that would be raised up made up of both jew and gentile so he plants the vineyard under the leadership of moses and joshua but then he he hedges it or protects it how the lord is speaking here is is basically referring to if you can receive it the time of the judges. This is the time where Israel would, would, would succeed and fail, succeed and fail. And each and every time they needed a, a leader to, to protect them and to keep the vineyard from being destroyed. He's referencing the time of the judges. Then he goes on and talks about digging a wine press in the vineyard. The wine press is the spirit. The wine press really uh, is is when the spirit would begin to flow within the nation, if you will, and you can label it however you want. But he's he's basically referring to to the epic or the time of King David, when the spirit, the Psalms, the tabernacle, the wine press, the flow of the spirit began to happen in the nation. And then he talks about building a tower, and that tower 
is is where the watchmen are. So he was basically referring to them all along from Moses to Joshua to the judges to, to the time of David and the outpouring of my spirit unto the prophets. All of this was given to you. And, and then it was left in your care. Tower represents the watchmen or the prophets. And then he says, and it was let out to the husbandmen. He now begins to address them as the Sanhedrin from the high priest to the 70 elders of Israel. He says, this was left in your hands. And then he says, the householder or the absolute ruler in verse 33 goes into the far country. That far country he's referencing there is heaven itself. Now he accelerates them in verse 34. Can you read that, Brother Jeremy? Amen. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. This is really interesting because he begins to uh, to show forth just in this interesting way that he presents it. The husbandmen are the Sanhedrin. The husbandmen are the ruling elite, the elders, and 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 the priesthood itself. They are the ones that are responsible for caring for the production and for the cultivation and for the sowing and all the things that go into taking care of a vineyard. But then he he talks about something different. He talks about servants that are sent to them as the fruit is drawing near. And what he's really doing here is beginning to press into them and to expose them uh, for being <laughs> the absolute corrupt people that they became. And in, and why am I sharing this? Because the same thing has happened in our time. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. we've really come, we've really come to this point. And, and when the time of the fruit, that's an interesting phrase that the Lord uses here because the time of the fruit, if you actually dig into that word there, it means the decisive time. The, and, and, and Jesus is telling them a decisive time has come to you. It's the time of the fruit. It's, it's a decisive epic. It's, it also means the time of a crisis moment. It's a definitive time. Why is it a crisis moment? It's a prophetic crisis moment because based on how they're going to decide what to do up underneath the prophetic time, it will determine their fate, not only as the husbandman, but as the nation as a whole. And in many, in many ways, this is what we are witnessing in our time, you know, in, in the church establishment of our day here in the West. We've reached an epic time. We've reached the time of the fruit. But those in control have have caused the nation to enter into a place that's of absolute danger because basically they've rejected the Lord of glory. He's on his way. We know that the time of the fruit, there's two times of, 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 of fruitful seasons that were spoken of. The original time when the Lord came in the natural to the nation of Israel, but there would also be a time at the end. And, 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 and that's what he would go on later to say in his parables that, that the harvest is the time of the end. So what we could be looking for here as he was telling them is that servants were sent to you alerting you and he's kind of like liking it to john the baptist too as like the final servant that showed up right he's saying they were sent to you and they were they were they were there to receive the fruits of it which is very interesting to me and, and i and i don't want to get too deep into that but 
but it shows a delineation between ministerial responsibility, fancy words for saying, look, one plants, another waters, but it's God that gives the increase. It's, it's, it's the sharing of responsibility or the relinquishing of the fruit that they didn't want to, to do. They had reached the point of absolute religious political corruption. And so when it came to sending servants to them, as the time of the fruit drew near, he didn't say the time of the fruit had come already, but it was drawing near. So in essence, he says, God has been sending you servants all this time. In verse 35, he says, the husbandmen took his servants, would beat one, they killed another, they stoned another. And then he says, then there came another era. Verse 36, again, he says, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. And then he finally comes to verse 37. And what he's actually telling them in verse 37 is, okay, the era is over. And this is what the Father has the Lord share in verse 37. Can you share that in verse 37? Excuse me, Brother Jeremy, verse 37 and 38, please. Amen. But last of all, <clears throat> he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. Incredible the level of evil that he's exposing by telling this story, which they're about to uh, to acknowledge. They're going to know that he's talking about them because that's how the chapter ends. It's like he's talking about us, you know, and that, and it's the truth. But he 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 so skillfully exposes who they really are. They rejected every single move of God, every single servant that came and proclaimed to them the kingdom of heaven is at hand through the ages. Now he says, this is it, last of all. In other words, this is your final chance, and now I'm here, his son. And he reveals the heart of the father. If I send my only begotten son, surely they will receive him. He was unlike any other. But what he showed in verse 38 is incredible. In verse 38, he says, when the husbandmen, he's talking about their leadership, the religious ruling elite and the political elite of their day in Israel. When they saw the son, look at what he says here in verse 38, they say among themselves. So he's talking about a unified rebellion here of leadership. And then they say, what? This is the heir. They knew who he was. That's what Jesus is implying to them. You know who I am. You know. He says, but what you are going to do and what is being revealed to <laughs> what what he's basically revealing to them by this story is telling them, I know what you are going to do. And what you will say is, let us kill him. And here's the reason why. So that we can seize his inheritance. Incredible. Absolutely incredible that they would rather, or they had reached that point through hundreds of years of establishment religion, that they literally had become like their father, the devil. That's what he called them, right? Correct. And that they wanted to take full and absolute possession of what didn't belong to them. 
much like what we right. see in the American church today. You let God send prophets to the Americans, real prophets, not phony prophets. They'll kill them. They'll stone them. They'll beat them. And they have throughout the 20th century, if you really think about it. But then he goes on in verse 39 and reveals to them that of what's actually going to happen. He, he reveals prophecy in 39 and 40. Can you read that? And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Verse 39, he reveals three things, right? He says they will catch him, they will cast him out of the vineyard, and they will slay him. That's what he said. Well, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what they did, right? They caught him. That's, where did they catch him? In Gethsemane, right? That's where they caught him, in Gethsemane. And then what? He says they'll cast him out of the vineyard. That's exactly what they did. Remember when they gathered together and they had that trial after Judas betrayed him? They excommunicated him and handed him over to the Romans. And then they slew him. That was his crucifixion on Calvary. And so he reveals to them what the Lord of the vineyard will do. He asks them, what is he going to do to those people? And what did they say? It's very interesting. Verse 41. They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Incredible that they were blind to the point that they were pronouncing judgment on themselves. They themselves. Remember when Nathan came to King David and told him the story about the, the poor man who had one precious lamb and, and the, the rich man took that lamb from him and, 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 and so forth and so on. And David like judged himself. Remember he said, well, that guy should be killed. You know, that's horrible. And Nathan pointed the finger at him and said, well, you're the guy. In essence, that's what they're doing here. Yeah, they ought to just, you know, he's going to destroy those wicked men. He's going to give the vineyard to somebody else to take care of it. People that will actually, you know, give him fruit in, in, in the times that they're meant to produce the fruit. They're pronouncing judgment on themselves. And so what's really interesting in verse 42 is he says this. Can you read that, Brother Jim? Jesus said unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is, this is incredible what he says here. And, and now think about this, because what he's actually revealing right here, again, uh, as we laid out the foundation at the beginning of just looking at this, this parable that he gave, we talked about his entrance into Jerusalem. We talked about his cleansing of the temple. We talked about his healing of the lame and the blind. We talked about the witnesses of the people in the streets who herald him as the king of the Jews and then the children who called him the Messiah. And then we talked about how, how the Lord drew their attention to, to Malachi 
in that he actually in public by what he did coming into Jerusalem that final week was fulfilling prophecy. The messenger of the covenant, whom the Lord whom you seek, suddenly coming to his temple, sitting as a refiner's fire in a fuller slope, cleansing the temple so that the priest could offer an offering in righteousness. That's what the Lord did when he cleansed the temple. The fact that he was heralded as, as, the, as the Messiah by the children, he draws them to the scriptures. The fact that he's healing the lame and the, blame, the, lame and the blind, he's fulfilling Malachi. The son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And then he draws their attention to John the Baptist, questioning them as to whether his mission was from God or not. Because John came in the spirit of Elijah and introduced Jesus to the nation at his baptism. And so all of that was being questioned and brought into question. And then he goes into this parable that we're talking about, and he's speaking at such a marvelously skillful level as only the Lord can in telling them this story. And then when he gets to verse 42, he draws their attention to the scripture again. He's drawing their attention to prophecy. And what he, what he quotes is the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. To those who are not familiar with, with what the Lord is doing here and how profoundly what he's telling them is, uh, what he is actually doing is drawing their attention uh, to Psalm 118. That's what he's quoting from. And I know he did that in the hopes that they would go back and read Psalm 118. And let's take a look at Psalm 118. Because that's what he was saying. Look at what he's doing here. And and I'll, and I encourage you who are listening, who are interested in studying this, what's actually happening here, prophetically speaking, read the whole thing. Because really what you're talking about here and what Jesus was referring to them to, if they would have read the whole psalm, he's talking about the judgment of the Lord that would come upon them and how he would destroy them for surrounding him. He then goes and, and, and begins to separate between the two he starts presenting himself as the salvation of the lord in verse 21 of psalm 118 read that brother jeremy verse 21 i will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation lord you've become my salvation he's talking to them so deeply and then comes verse 22 which is what he quoted to them read that brother jeremy 22 and 23 the stone which the builders re refused to become the headstone of the corner. This is Read what the doing. Read that again, please. You kind of messed that sure. one up. The I stone, suppose. the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. Mm -hmm. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Listen, he is. Uh, quoting Psalm 118 to them. He's laying out the case. He draws them to this prophetic scripture in the Psalms of 118. And another thing that most people don't understand or, or know that is in the Gentile world, this particular Psalm, 118, it was the Psalm that they sing every Passover season as they are slaying the Passover lamb. It's one of the required hymns for Passover. So when he draws their attention to Psalm 118, it's at the Passover season and he's about to be crucified. 
and he's presenting himself to them as their salvation. And he's saying, I am that stone. And then (laughs) he goes on, and if you remember at the close of chapter 23, where he says, you won't see me here again until you cry, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's also Psalm 118. Read that to us, Brother Jeremy, in verse uh, 26. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And he goes on to tell them in verse 27 what? God is the Lord which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even into the horns of the altar. he's, He's revealing to them that they would reject him. But he is the Lord of Psalm 118. That's how Jesus was talking to them. These were the men that should have known better. These were the ruling elite. These were the Sanhedrin and the elders. He speaks in such profound ways, and he always draws us to his scripture to understand prophetic times. He fulfilled Psalm 118. You see, when they were crucifying Jesus on the cross, on Calvary, this song was being sung in the temple as the Passover lamb is being brought to be slain. They are tying the lamb to the horns of the altar as the Christ was tied uh, to the four posts or the four-sided cross, right? North, south, east, and west, right? There's four horns on the altar. He was attached to the cross as the lamb is being attached to the four horns of the altar. While they're slaying the lamb in the temple, he's being slain on Calvary. Oh, they couldn't see it. They didn't understand it. But that's what was happening. And in essence, that's what he was talking to them. If we go back now, Brother Jeremy, to Matthew 21, that's what he was saying to them. The progression and the unfolding of the phases of what God was doing and the judgment that came upon them is everything he's telling them in the parable of 33. And so in verse 42, that's why he quotes Psalm 118, and he presents himself as the stone which the builders rejected. Now read to us, Brother Jeremy, verse 43 and 44, would you? Therefore say say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Incredible. Because what he goes on to reveal there is you're about to have this taken from you. It's going to be given to another nation. That nation that he's talking about there is the church. It's, it's it's the nation. That's what Peter called. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're made up of both Jew and Gentile. He talks about the, the kingdom of God being taken from them and given to that nation, to the church. The other husbandmen they were referring to really became the apostles. You know, they were the they were the other husbandmen. They were they would become the rulers. They would become the elders of the church. The nation itself would become the, the Gentile and Jewish church, and and it would be taken from natural Israel. 
they would be destroyed. And forever, uh, they would lose their right uh, to, to being the caretakers of the things of God. Then he reveals his second coming in the church age in verse 44. And he, and he presents it in two ways. One, again, he's emphasizing the stone, right? In verse 44, he says, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. He's basically referencing salvation, repentance. When we come to him, we become a broken and contrite spirit. That's what David said. A broken and a contrite spirit you will not despise. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, right? But but a broken and a contrite spirit you will not despise. He's talking about repentance, coming to the stone and, and being broken by him in order that we might be saved. But then he reveals his second coming in a very interesting way because he says, but on whomsoever it, speaking of the stone, shall fall, it will grind him to powder. That's the second coming of the Lord. And and we find this in the prophecies of Daniel. Remember, he references the stone. Go over to Daniel chapter 2 because this is where we are right now. We're coming to the end of this parable. In Daniel 2, remember what Jesus is talking about, the stone falling on 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 the on the kingdom and then grounding it to powder that's how he describes it that's exactly what daniel uh revealed here that nebuchadnezzar had dreamt can you read that brother jeremy um in verse 33 through 35 chapter 2 notice the word stone in there which jesus used his legs of iron his feet part of iron and part of clay Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken in pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Filled the whole earth. This is what Jesus is telling them. You know, your kingdom is is gone. A new nation's about to be born. A new vineyard, right? Well, in essence, uh, the, the church of the living God. New husbandmen, the apostles. And then the church age, you know, the repentance era that he spoke of, if you fall on the stone, you'll be broken. In other words, you have an opportunity here to be broken, to repent, and to allow this this stone to, 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 to you know, to make you part of his church. But when the stone comes and falls on that person, he's referencing the end of time, really. It'll grind it to powder. In other words, there'll be nothing of it left. He's referencing Daniel's prophecy of that stone who hits the Gentile world at the end. That's where we are right now. He's coming soon. He is that stone. And that's what Daniel goes on to reveal as he interpreted what he just said here. And he says, in the days of these kings, right? Can you read that, Brother Jeremy? Chapter 2, um, verse 43 and 44 and 45. Might as well just read it all, I guess. Okay. All the way to 49? 45. 
to 45. Yeah. And whereas, and whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. It's very interesting how Jesus in that parable unfolded the two-phase plan of God, really. First, he had to be offered to the nation of Israel who would reject him, and they would ultimately be destroyed. A new nation would arise out of it, made up of both Jew and Gentile, with new husbandmen made up of the holy apostles of God. Paul, I believe, becoming the twelfth in many ways, and that's my that's my opinion. But but they brought forth the fruit, and Jesus then begins to describe the age of the church when he references there that whoever falls on that stone will be broken, and that's salvation, that's repentance. But at the end of time, that same stone will grind those who refused uh, to come to the Lord at that extended time period and will grind them to powder. It's the same kind of language that he, he's referencing here because remember, first he was offered to the Jew and then he was offered to the nations of the world. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was all about. We ain't got time to get into all that in specifics today, but basically we pick it up with the, the, the reference to the stone that Jesus is talking about. As the Bible says here, as Daniel interpreted it, in verse 44 that in the days of these kings he's talking about the particular time period that we're beginning to witness come together even in our time and he says that same stone is coming and 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 when he comes it's, he's going to do exactly what jesus said he's going to hit the image on the feet he's going to grind it to powder like the shaft right that's blown by the wind and out of that his kingdom will rise and and will fill the whole world and the kingdom of God will be with men. That's what Jesus was telling them in chapter 21. It's a quite extraordinary, eventful thing. He goes on in chapter 22 and 23, and I, I encourage you in Matthew 22 and 23 to read through that and to see what he does. He then begins to enlarge it more when he talks about the wedding feast. He talks about the, the people who made light of, the, of God's invitation and then he told them that their city was going to be burned up that's what he goes on in chapter 22 to talk to them about and he begins to continually deal with them on, on a prophetic basis and then by the time he gets to chapter 23 that's where he finally leaves them and rejects them but not without leaving one of the most incredible indictments you'll ever read he, he basically goes through uh, who they were and how how absolutely corrupt they had become and why he would remove his presence from the nation. I honestly fear that that's where we are today if you want to take it into a larger prophetic parallel, that he has offered himself to this nation. 
that the nation has rejected him, but has formed itself. I'm talking about the church now, the religious establishment has in essence formed itself into a great and, and powerful religious, political, and corrupted organization. And, and that God continually sending his servants to us over the years and the rejection of, of what was being spoken and, and the desire for correction to be administered to, to the leadership and to the church as a whole for decades and decades and decades was refused. And then finally, we've reached this point where they embraced, if you can receive it, a political movement instead of, of, a, of a repentance movement, if you will, to allow the Spirit of God to cause us to endure as the nation that we've known. But we've reached that time now where the Gentile kingdoms of, of this earth are coming together, seeking to impose a global dominion. The Lord predicted at the end of that parable that he would return as a stone and grind it all to powder. We know we're in that place right now. A transition has taken place. I believe that God is giving his, his leadership to a new generation that will bring forth the fruits thereof as we come up underneath the time that we find ourselves right now. It's a complete transition, just as it was in the first coming of the Lord. It is again, just prior to his second coming. That's the parable of the vineyard. And I think that it's something that we need to pay attention to <laughs> and uh, and kind of where I think we are right now. Any thoughts, brothers? Brother Fernando, what do you have to say? We've been talking about a global reset. Yes. I think the Lord is up to his own reset. Um, yeah. It's terrible, right? He's resetting things in proper order. Um, a transition from, you know, for, for too long, the, the uh, uh, compromised leadership that has led the church in America has had their way. I was looking at... Um, uh, one of the biggest preachers um, in America, and it was the most eerie, eerie thing eerie, that I ever saw. You know, he's, he has this massive, massive church, and he's and he's doing his Sunday service um, <laughs> in front of this empty church. Oh, you wow. know, and I mean, it fits thousands, and, and the church is empty. You hear his voice just echo. In my mind, I'm like, you know. Why don't you just find one of your, your some office room somewhere in the back and, and get the program from there, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <Wow. laughs> you know. And uh but again it's 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 the stage, right? It's 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 what yeah. what they've been doing for years. They've been putting on a show. And yeah. uh you know, I said, Lord, this is truly a judgment. A judgment to this uh kind of church that has completely you know turned their back on you and the transition like you said you know um to to a, a church you know that that's going to preach the word without compromise is taking place yes right something is taking place as we yes. speak if you have eyes to see and that's really what this whole parable is about you know and, yes. and it's it's amazing how the Lord gives us references to the book of Daniel, if we have eyes to see concerning yeah. the end times, you know, and, and what's coming. 
these empires that Daniel saw that are unfolding before our very own eyes in succession, right? So we are in that time as well where uh, we are seeing these uh, global empires unfold in succession, but at the same time, uh, in it, he connects a transition where he will, um, you know, choose a, a church, set apart a church who who will ultimately proclaim the coming of the Lord. Praise God. That's good. But Jeremy? You know, I, I really believe in this, in this, just in this last hour, we have gotten a tremendous revelation and insight on this parable. And it fits so prophetically, uh, it links to the times that we are living. And um, out of all the things that were brought out today, what really caught my attention was when you got to verse 37 and you spoke about revealing the Father's heart. In spite of their situation, you know, he still said, you know, I'm going to send my son. Maybe they will reverence my son. And then in verse 38, what that exposes is really... I mean, it's an indictment because they they see the son and they say, oh, this is the heir. Let us kill him. Let us seize on his inheritance. This is an indictment on the church. It's an indictment on on the leadership of that time. And and really what what he's saying, it it, it reminds me what you said. It links to the beginning. Basically, the indictment is that they are guilty of being partakers of the great transgression of what took yeah. place before time, you know, what yeah. Satan tried to do. It's the, the, the exact, and, and I want the listeners to hear this, it's the exact same spirit that they were functioning in. Yeah. That's what's happening today. The the spirit in which these ministers, uh, sad to say, are functioning is is of the spirit of from the beginning of this great transgression. And that's what stood out to me, uh, aside from all the things that, that it was a very tremendous dissertation just in an hour that the Lord allowed us to glean into. And, and I think we should study these things. Go back to Psalms 118, which is what Jesus, you know, what he referenced. Jesus, yes. even though he was God, he just didn't say things just to say them. He would always reference and echo what the prophets said in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. if you have ears to hear and eyes to see. So, praise God. Praise God. Amen. Anything else, that's brothers? <laughs> no, I Amen. think that's where we are. I think that you made, both of you made really good points there. And, and uh, you know, we encourage you to study these things. We went through them in an hour, but I could literally take probably the entire week and really break this down. But we want to encourage you to understand what we are witnessing again in chapter 21, 22, and 23, which then gives way into Jesus's book of Revelation, if you will, right? Matthew 24 and 25, mm-hmm. where he talks about That's the ten good. virgins. He, he talks about the abomination of desolation. These things all flowed in a pattern. And so we have to look at, at these things and understand that we have to um, perceive uh, by the scriptures, because that's what he kept doing with them. He kept saying, look, it's written right here. The scripture says this, you know, whose authority do I do it by? Well, what's a, who was John? What was John all about, right? And he's just talking to them in such deep ways. And he's trying, mm-hmm. uh, short of, you know, you know, 
transfiguring before them like he did with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when he actually let them see the glory that was on the inside of him. So brilliant was that glory. The Bible says that it actually changed his cloak into this brilliant white garment, right? The kind of garment that the, the, the Roman soldiers ended up gambling for. I mean, it, he could have done that. He could have done a whole bunch of, he could have opened up the floor and thrown one of them into the pit, you know, then, then they would have believed, but he didn't, <laughs> he didn't do that. He approached them on the basis of the scripture. Now, what that teaches us, brothers and sisters, is that we must be about learning what the prophet said. I've always been fascinated with how the apostle Peter, when he wrote second Peter, what he told them, it was the last letter he was writing before he would go home to be with the Lord. But he addressed specifically prophetic events and the end time. And in that, he said, I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And he mm -hmm. talked about in the last days, scoffers would come saying, where is the promise of his coming? He said, but, but to you who recognize the times, I'm going to admonish you that you be mindful of the words that were spoken by us, the, holy, uh, the commandments of the holy apostles and the writings of the prophets. And so when okay. Jesus approached them in their time, he did it the same way. I think that's why Peter tells us the same thing. He kept drawing them to the prophets. He kept identifying them, uh, to them uh, how he was fulfilling prophetic scripture, whether they understood it or not. So what we learn from this is right now, what's going on all over the world, everything that's happening, it's already been written. And we need to understand that so that we know how to properly respond in these times. And to also understand the time that we find ourselves in. Every generation has had their prophetic moment throughout the course of history. Every generation has had their moment of, of purpose. But there are unique generations that witness the, 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 the culmination of, of, of the unfolding of time as the prophetic spirit of God moves through them. I'll give you an example. Abraham uh, fought over the covenant that he cut with God when the, when the birds came down and Abraham had to fight them out. And then God appeared to him there and prophesied to him that he was actually going to be the father of, of Isaac. And then Isaac would, you know, give birth or father Jacob. And then there would come a nation out of it. And he told Abraham, they're going to be in bondage for 430 years, basically. And, mm -hmm. and then they will come out. Well, each generation was unfolding within those 430 years, their prophetic moment. But when the fullness of time came, then came the Exodus. And, 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 and so they were a unique generation in that they were the generation of the deliverance. It's the same thing with the generation that was prophesied in the wilderness. You're going to die in the wilderness because you refused to believe God and take the promised land when he brought you to the edge. But your children are going to inherit it. So everybody under 20 years old and under, including Joshua and Caleb, who led them, were able to go into the promised land. When the time came, the fullness of time, they were the prophetic generation. It's the same thing with, with the prophets. That's why Jesus was talking about the hedging of the vineyard, the, the wine press that occurred, and the tower that we spoke of being symbolic of the prophetic servants that God would send to them, ultimately culminating in the first coming of the Lord with John the Baptist. And with the Lord himself, with his suffering on Calvary and his resurrection, they were the generation 
that reached the fullness of prophetic scriptures. And that's the basis that he talked to them about. On that basis, you are this generation where it's going to be taken from you and given to a, a, a new nation made up of Jew and Gentile, a new church, a new vineyard with new leadership, the apostles, so to speak. But now we have reached that time as we turned over to Daniel where we talked about the stone that smote the image. It is the fullness of the Gentile age. We've come to that time where now the world is reaching that time where it is now moving in a very draconian antichrist way to enslave uh, the entire population of the planet. That's what we are witnessing taking place in the United States right now. America has indeed fallen. The wings of the eagle have been plucked, and we are the generation that will witness the return of the Lord. Bearing that in mind, we need to turn to the prophetic scriptures and understand what it is the Lord has revealed to us so that we can walk through these treacherous times as the Lord warned us. I'm sending you forth as sheep amongst wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. The only way we can do that is understanding how the Lord talks, how he communicates, and all of it is found in the spirit and testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of the prophets and the prophetic scriptures. Go ahead, Brother Jeremy, close us out, would you? I'll say, Amen. I'll say one what thing, brothers. Um, in, yes, in verse forty-two, in verse forty-two, you know, he says, "Have you never read the scriptures in this way? Have you ever mm-hmm. contemplated Psalms one eighteen um, right. in this way?" Right? Yeah. He's, he's teaching them how to properly, uh, as we spoke about last Friday, unlock uh, the Psalms. Yes. Right. And, and, yes. and Obviously, they hadn't been taught that way to see the words prophetically. Do you see it that the 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 stone that that the builders rejected? It it speaks that the vineyard is taken away from you and and given to somebody else, and and he will become the head of the corner of the church, right? Yes. He was teaching yes. them how to properly discern those scriptures prophetically, challenging mm-hmm. them, and how it, it it's it was it's traditionally taught or what's being taught in their day. It's Think amazing. about that for a moment. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So if that was happening in his day, and we take the, um, uh, again, we, we use the, the, the keys of, of what Scripture says in, in, in Isaiah, he declares the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. If it was happening in his mm-hmm. day, and he was teaching his disciples how to properly unlock and discern Scripture, is the Lord doing the same today? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, it, Absolutely. and is and is that that being played out in our day today where the vineyard is being taken away from the religious establishment that has led our nation and being given over to the true church? Yes. Right before his coming. To a true remnant church right before his coming. And he's teaching that true remnant church who the disciples were a type of how yes. to discern scripture prophetically concerning the last days and the times we're living in right now. Mm-hmm. So if you feel many times like this podcast is challenging the way you see things, Praise it's God. not us. It's not us. Mm-hmm. It's what the Lord is speaking to us individually, yes. number one, in our own private life. And it is what he is telling us to convey to you, his people. Mm-hmm. That's why these podcasts are not for the 
you know, for Thank for 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 those, yeah, the, the faint of heart, those who, who don't study scripture, you know, and, and are students of the word of God. You have to be a student of the word of God and have a love for his word to really understand where we're coming from. It's not yeah. exclusive. But he does demand yeah. that, right? That we yeah. love him with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our might. Right? So this is the things that you have to consider in your prayer life. Are you being mm-hmm. challenged by us or by the Lord? Right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, because you got to you got to separate the two. Because you know, you can listen to a man and say, "Well, I don't know, I don't know if if they're all there and what they're teaching." Well, you have to ask yourself: Is the Lord speaking through these vessels? And if He is, you have to take heed. Yeah. You have to really pay attention and, and, and walk in obedience and say, all right, Lord, I hear what you're telling me. I see it. I see it in Scripture. Or reveal it to me. Show it to me. Right? So, praise God. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's very interesting that you bring that up because look who he's talking to. I mean, in the natural, it seems like a, a redundant question. Did you never read in the Scriptures? That's what they did every day. <laughs> That's what they did every day. That was their life, reading the scriptures, you know, at the temple. Yeah. They they memorized. They had these things memorized, many of them. But what yeah. he was trying to tell them, as you as you astutely uh, pointed out, it's it. he was telling them something much deeper, is that, yeah, you may read the scriptures, but you don't know how to distinguish between them. You haven't learned to recognize. Or, you know, the definition of, of, of read mean, read means to know accurately. <laughs> or to acknowledge. That's what he was getting to, right? Because they read the scriptures every single day. They, it's not that they didn't read it, but they were not properly distinguishing who it was talking about. Or maybe it was just a willful ignorance. <laughs> Whichever it was of the two, you know, how much more do we not only just need to read the scriptures, but have to have the discernment and by the spirit be able to distinguish and that's what these podcasts, uh, that's what, with the help and the grace and the mercy of God is, is to bring these scriptures and be able to distinguish, distinguish between them and, or, or being able to recognize what God is saying prophetically in this hour. So, uh, tremendous study. Anybody else wants to say anything before I close, Brother Marty or Brother Fernando? <clears throat> no, that's good. We'll pick it up again tomorrow. Amen. Amen. We pray that you've been blessed today and uh, we pray that you've been challenged and I pray that you join us tomorrow uh, as we have begun the week again and God has something fresh and new to give us. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. And as always, keep looking up.